Sorry. As, as you flip there, like, like we've heard prayed, like Peter has introduced to us this morning, many of us have gone through tremendous suffering in our lives, or we've seen others go through suffering. Throughout this past year, the coronavirus pandemic has left many suffering, many variety of ways. We live with terrible evils, as we've heard prayed about abortion, sex trafficking, all kinds of terrible things. Sometimes we find ourselves without jobs. Sometimes we find ourselves with deep sadness because of things going on in our family. Sometimes families are split apart. Unexpected accidents happen. Tragic loss of life in our loved ones happen. And when all of these things happen, an understandable question is asked. And that is, where is God? Where is God when these things happen? If we haven't faced anything like this in our lives, you can be sure that we will most likely face things like this in our lives one day. So it's not only understandable, it's essential for us as Christians to be able to answer the question, where is God in our suffering? And I believe this psalm helps us to answer this question this morning. So let's pray and ask God for help. Lord, thank you for your word. I ask that you would speak to us. Help us understand your word. Encourage us. Edify us. And help us to see how wonderful and beautiful Jesus Christ is. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're taking notes, I'm going to have three points this morning as we walk through this text. And these are, number one, Where is God? God is available to us in prayer. Number two, God is on his throne, reigning over all things. And then number three, Jesus, God the Son, was on the cross, suffering on our behalf. Before we dive into the text, I want to give two preliminary thoughts. One, for Christians. Often, many of us have heard bad, unhelpful answers when we face suffering. Simplistic, unhelpful answers. That is not what I want to do this morning. So, but, however, I've only got about two hours to preach to you this morning. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that to you. But the point is, I can't explore this morning all there is to be said and all that needs to be said about suffering. More will be said, more should be said. You can take it to the bank. If you come to this church, we will open up God's word and see what it has to say about a variety of issues. Number two, if you're not a Christian, we're so glad that you're here. You're welcome here. And we know that you too face suffering and affliction. And so as we talk about our hope and our comfort as we face affliction, I challenge you to consider for yourselves, where is your hope? Where is your comfort when you face difficulty and trials in life? So let's dive into the text. Number one, God is available to his people in prayer. How do we know this? Well, one of the first reasons we know this is because this psalm is in the Bible. We believe that God's holy inspired word was written by men 
who desired to write exactly what they wanted to write, but at the same time were carried along by the Holy Spirit, inspired by him, so that as they wrote, what God wanted to be written was written down. So God and the human authors are 100% responsible for all of Scripture, everything we have in here. So that very existence of Psalm 102 in here, this cry of affliction in the midst of pain, lets us know that this is how God desires to be worshipped. This is one way how God desires for us to speak to Him, to pray to Him, to sing to Him. Another reason we know He cares is because in verse 17 of our text, the psalmist says that God regards the prayer of the destitute and he does not despise their prayer. We'll see much more of God's care in this text, but just from the beginning, I want us to see that God turns his attention towards those who are afflicted and does not despise their prayer. He does not despise your prayer when you're suffering. He does not despise your prayer when you are afflicted, when you're crying out to him in pain. He wants you to pray like this to him when you're in pain. He cares for his people when they are suffering. And we suffer, and the psalmist suffers, in a variety of different ways. Let's look here in the text. In verses 1 through 11, we see a variety of ways that the psalmist suffers. He suffers mentally and emotionally, like in verse 4 when he says his heart is struck down and it's like grass. It has withered. The heart is like the center of our will and affection. So what the psalmist is communicating here is that his will is struck down. He has no affection anymore. Depression has likely set in. He's losing the will to live. We also see in this verse later on in verse 4 that he's not eating. He doesn't have a desire to eat. Because of his suffering, he's lost his appetite. Many of us have been there. Depression, anxiety, loss of appetite, maybe even suicidal thoughts. We could list a variety of ways that we and the world are afflicted by this kind of suffering. We see the author is also uh, experiencing physical suffering. Look with me at verse 5. He says, Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. Because of his suffering and affliction, his bones are literally, or maybe metaphorically, clinging to his flesh. But we know what this is. This is a medical term called emaciation. If I'm messing something up, those of you who are smarter than me, just uh, forgive me. But it's, it's where malnourishment um, and loss, an extreme loss of fat and muscle will literally cause the bones to be seen through the skin. Uh, and this is a terrible physical condition that someone can be in. Our psalmist is in that position because of the suffering that he's enduring. We see in verse 7, he's not sleeping. We see in verse 3 and verse 11 that the author believes he is near death. Many of us have had to deal with physical suffering, disease, chronic pain, numerous ways. The psalmist also, a third way, has relational suffering. In verse 6, he uses the imagery of a desert owl of the wilderness and an owl of the waste places. 
In verse 7, he tells us that he's like a lonely sparrow on a housetop. He feels alone. And then in verse 8, we see that he has enemies. They're taunting him, using his name as a curse. Relational pain hurts. Many of us are familiar with this. All of us want to be loved and accepted. A final way we see that the psalmist is suffering in our text is in verse 10. Look with me. He says, It's because of your indignation and anger, for you have taken me up and thrown me down. We don't know all the details of this man's life. We don't know his situation. But he believes that at least some of his suffering, maybe all of it, is due to his own sin and due to God's judgment. But we don't know. Is it part of it? Is it all of it? We don't know. This is in line with Scripture. Scripture as a whole teaches us that suffering in general does exist because of sin, the sin of Adam and Eve. Disaster, suffering, disease, every bad thing entered into God's good world after Adam and Eve sinned. So suffering is the result of sin generally. However, when individuals suffer, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're suffering because of our sin. Particular suffering in our lives isn't always the result of our sin. So this is in accordance with Scripture, and this is in accordance with our own lives. We know this. All of us have experienced times where we have sinned, and we have had to deal with the consequences. And sometimes that means that we go through affliction and suffering because of our choices. All of us also know that we can go through physical suffering, mental suffering, any of it that we've just named, and it might not have anything to do with sin in our lives. Disease happens to people sometimes. And it's not the result of your sin. So I, I say all this and bring, bring all this to, to kind of help us understand one quick application here. Let's be careful with our words. When disaster strikes, when something happens in someone's life, we probably don't know that it happened because of sin. So let's not act like we know. And let's not presume to speak falsely about God. But let's continue. So there are a variety of ways that the psalmist is suffering in this text. And we too understand because there's a variety of ways that we suffer in our lives. And, and that's kind of one of the first points I want to make here as we explore God's availability to us in prayer is that we can see ourselves in this text. Look at the inscription of the psalm. The inscription says that this is a prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Now, if you're familiar with the Psalms, some of them will give us who the author is. Some of them will even give us the historical context behind why the Psalm is written. But this one doesn't. It gives us a situation. He's afflicted, but it doesn't tell us what's going on. Therefore, this Psalm is designed to be used in Israel's worship as an example of how a suffering believer can approach God in the midst of their affliction. I want to repeat that because I think that's kind of one of the main points of this text. The psalm is designed to be used in Israel's worship as an example of how a suffering believer can approach God in worship. So its general nature 
helps us, as we approach this text, to see ourselves in this text. Maybe we're not going through everything that the psalmist is going through. We don't know who wrote it. We don't know what's going on to result in the suffering. But what many of us do know is what it feels like to be going through difficult times, to face suffering. Did you know that the Bible highlighted this kind of pain? Maybe it's one of the first times you've ever seen your own pain on the pages of Scripture. I point all this out to just reinforce this first point. God is available to us in prayer because he cares about us. No matter your situation, no matter what you're suffering, even if you're suffering in part because of your sin, brothers and sisters, God cares about us. This is a beautiful truth. We are often tempted to not pray when we face affliction. We feel too sinful. We feel like God doesn't care about our small situations. We even have false teachers out there that will tell us, you're going through the suffering because you don't have enough faith. None of that is true. Let's let it be heard loud and clear this morning. God cares for us always. But when you're suffering, he especially cares for you. He desires for you to cry out to him, your loving heavenly father. And he does not despise your prayer. I want to hit a couple more application points right here before we move on. First, we're subtly taught not to talk to God like this. How do I know? Before coming to this church, I've never heard a prayer of lament in a Sunday worship gathering. And the church is supposed to be one of the primary places where we are discipled to know how to love God, worship God, follow him and obey him. So if at the church we're not encouraged to worship him in all the ways that the Bible teaches us that he should be worshiped, then we're missing out. We're missing out on discipleship on how to reach or to look to him in prayer, to cry out to him in prayer. So the first application is basically just when you're afflicted, cry out to God in prayer. He cares for you. Second thing of application so far, we often avoid talking to each other about these things too. It might be because we're at times discouraged to talk to God like this. But I think subtly in some churches that I've been in, we get this idea that we're supposed to have it all together. Because we come to church and we see everybody got, got, got on their Sunday best, they're smiling, their kids are well-behaved, they seem to have the perfect marriage. They didn't fight like we did on the way to church this morning. And so we see these perfect people, we think they're perfect people, and we think that we have to be perfect people. We think we need to just put smiles on our face. We have to have everything okay going on in our lives, right? Sometimes we feel like that. But I think one of the things this text helps us to see, that on the pages of Scripture, someone is crying out to God in their distress, it's okay to not be okay. Part of being a member of God's people means that we're family. We need to be able to come to one another when we're going through times of affliction. We need to be the kind of people who are ready to receive each other when they're going through times of affliction. 
Obviously, I'm not advocating for us all to be Debbie Downers. Every time we have a conversation with someone in the hallway, just pouring out our soul to them. But that's not our problem. Most of us, the problem we have is that we, it's not that we do it too much. Most of us, our issue is we're not doing it enough. So let's think about that. Let's try to become the type of people who are not prideful and we're willing to share our hurts and our burdens with one another. And let's be the type of people that are ready to receive when people come to us and they're burdened. So God cares for us. He wants us to cry out to him in our pain. Point number two, where is God when we are suffering? God is on his throne, reigning over all things. If you look in the text, the tone shifts in verse 11 to verse 12. Let me read those for us. In verse 11, he says, My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. The tone shifts from complaint to consolation, from lament to hope. And how? How does the psalmist make this shift in this prayer? Because of who God is. In verse 12, we see that he, say that he says that God is king. He's enthroned. God is the eternal king. He's enthroned forever. And what it means for God to be enthroned and to reign is that he's sovereign over all things. Brothers and sisters, God cares for us and is available to us in prayer. He wants to hear our prayer, but also God is on the throne reigning, sovereign over our thi- all things. He is the one who is able to actually do something about our prayers and our sufferings. And that's good news. He rules over all things. He is sovereign even over our suffering. And that's a difficult truth at times. It's a glorious truth. Because we don't have a God who when tragedy strikes is like, whoops, didn't see that one coming. That would be terrible news because then he wouldn't actually be able to do anything about our suffering. If he's not sovereign over all things. But it's a difficult truth because it obviously leads to the question, well, why doesn't God do something about my suffering right now? And we're going to get to that in a little bit, I promise. But first, I just want to point out this shift here that, he, that the psalmist is making. His hope is in God, who reigns eternally. And he makes another shift, if you notice here in verse 12. He shifts from an individual lament about his own experience to a corporate expression of hope for all of the people of God. Look with me in verse 13. He says, God, you will arise and you will have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her, the appointed time to come. Look at verse 16. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. Zion is another name for Jerusalem, the city of God. And therefore, it's another name for God's people, Israel. So when he says that you will do this for Zion, he's saying, God, I have confidence that you will act for the good of your people. That's interesting, right? His individual experience of suffering, he he can't help but to connect that to what God is going to ultimately do for his people corporately. So why does he have this hope? 
He has this hope because he knows Scripture. As we continue to read through this psalm, look at verse 18. He says, Let this be recorded for a generation to come, so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord, that he looked down from his holy height. From heaven, the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set them free, those who were doomed to die, that they might declare in Zion the name of the Lord, and in Jerusalem his praise, when peoples gather and kingdoms to worship the Lord. What is he asking to be recorded in verse 18? He's asking for God's action, what God is going to do for his people to be written down so that a future generation can read about what God's done and can rejoice and praise the Lord. And he's doing this because he knows scripture. He has to know about the Exodus. He's talking about his own experience, really, because back then they wrote down and recorded the mighty things that God has done so that this psalmist knows what type of God he is worshiping. And he's looking back, he's saying, okay, this is who God is. He looks down from his holy height. He hears the groans of the prisoners and he desires to set free those who are captive and doomed to die. He knows what God has done in the Exodus. And he knows most likely, the promises that God's going to continue to do this. He's going to do it again. We see throughout the prophets, we see in Deuteronomy even, when before God's people go into the promised land, Moses is like, y'all keep God's commands. But spoiler alert, you're not going to keep God's commands. You're going to be exiled out of the land. But guess what? God is going to be merciful. God is going to be gracious. And he will bring you back. Psalmist knows scripture. And notice this isn't just like a little good thing that God's going to do for his people. This is a glorious future for his people. He's going to redeem them from death. He's going to gather them together in the holy city back to dwell with God so that they can praise and worship the Lord amongst all the nations. God has promised to do this. So the psalmist's hope in suffering is in his king who will act to bring about a glorious future for his people, for his glory and for their good. And this doesn't ignore his individual experience because we see him turn back to that in verse 23. Look with me in verse 23. He says, God has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. Oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days. You whose years endure throughout all generations. So we see in the example of the psalmist that we can both at the same time have hope in the future promises of God, of what he's going to do for all of his people, and at the same time not ignore our individual experience. And even if we don't know if he's going to answer our prayers to relieve us from the suffering that we're experiencing in the moment, we can still cry out to him because he cares for us. He loves us. He wants to hear our prayers. He knows that ultimately in the end, God will act. And he expresses that even in these next few verses. Look at verse 25. Of old, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth. You're the creator. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. 
but you will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. The psalmist has hope that his children will be secure, that his offspring will be established because his hope is ultimately in God who created all things who is sovereign over all things, who rules over all things. And in the end, he's going to renew all of creation just like we take off our dirty clothes after a hard day's work and put on clean clothes. He's going to renew it. He's going to put an end to all evil and all suffering. So the psalmist isn't necessarily having his hope in that God will act in his personal experience to relieve his individual suffering. Maybe he will, and often God does. But maybe he won't. The psalmist's ultimate hope is in a new creation, is in God who is sovereign over all, in a God who is unchanging. He won't change his mind about these promises that he's going to accomplish, and whose years have no end. Sometimes when we make promises, we might not keep them because I could die in a car wreck when I leave here today. God doesn't pass away. His years have no end. He will accomplish his promises and his purposes. So God is available to us in prayer. He is on the throne reigning over all things. And then point number three, Jesus, God the Son, was on the cross suffering on our behalf. If you'll turn your Bible to Hebrews chapter one, Morgan read this earlier, but I just want us to look at a couple of verses again. In Hebrews uh, chapter 1, we see uh, God's helping us to understand how Psalm 102 fits into the context of the grand narrative of Scripture. How does this fit into the whole story that the Bible tells? We also see in Hebrews 1 a picture of how Psalm 102 isn't the end of the story necessarily, right? We know the pattern of God's redemption that happened in the Exodus, that happened in the exile, that happened in the Old Testament, isn't the end of that pattern. That pattern is seen to culminate in the redemption that Jesus Christ brings. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 1. And, uh, starting in verse 3, I'm not going to read this, but starting in verse 3, he's arguing for the superiority of Jesus over the angels. And he does that by quoting Old Testament texts where God says certain things about Jesus and then God says certain things about the angels. And as Morgan read earlier, we would see the things he says about Jesus are a whole lot better than what he says about the angels. But in particular, look at verse 10 in Hebrews chapter 1. This is one of the things he says about Jesus. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Brothers and sisters, what we see here... Oh, by the way, do those verses look familiar? They should, because he's quoting from Psalm 102. His argument is that Jesus is superior to the angels. Why? Because he is the eternal, unchanging God who reigns 
over all things, who is sovereign over all things. Everything we've seen in Psalm 102 about God's care, God wanting his people to cry out to him, his immutability, his eternality, all of this, Hebrews tells us that God was actually saying that about Jesus. Jesus is our sovereign God, sovereign even over our suffering. But it gets even better. Jesus is not only the God who is sovereign over our suffering. Jesus is God the Son who came to us and suffered on our behalf. Remember the pattern of redemption that we saw in Psalm 102? God looks down from the heavens. He hears the groans of the prisoners. He desires to set them free, those who were doomed to die. When it, in an act much grander than the exodus, much grander than the return of God's people from the exile, we see in the person of Jesus Christ, God taking upon himself human flesh, infinite God tabernacling among us in the weakness of, mortal, of a mortal body. The incarnation, when Jesus comes to us, is the ultimate fulfillment of this psalmist's prayer. One commentator summarizes it like this. In this prayer, in Psalm 102, the psalmist is ultimately asking the infinite and immortal God, the Lord of Israel, to humble himself and to enter into the present moment and redeem Israel. And he did that, ultimately and finally through Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago. And what all did he accomplish? Let's think about this. The scriptures in Hebrews tells us that Jesus is our great high priest, meaning he's our representative before God who can offer the sacrifice of atonement to him for our salvation. Hebrews also tells us one of the applications of this idea that Jesus is our great high priest is that he was made like us. He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he has been tempted as we have, yet he is without sin. Think about the suffering in the psalm that the psalmist experienced. And then think about Jesus' suffering. Jesus went through physical suffering, right? He was whipped. He was beaten. He had a crown of thorns thrust upon his head. He was crucified, one of the most excruciating deaths that anyone could ever endure. Jesus experienced relational suffering. Talk about enemies, right? Like everyone hated him in the end. And his enemies were his own creation. How, how painful must that have been? His closest friends abandoned him in the end. Except the women. They were there at the cross. His family thought he was crazy. And on the cross, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken in our place. Jesus understands relational pain. Jesus understands emotional and mental suffering as well. Just imagine this. We can think about the, maybe the physical pain that Jesus endured on the cross. But think about the mental, spiritual, emotional turmoil that he must have experienced as he drank the cup of God's wrath on our behalf. What is that like? We will never know if we are in Christ. Because he did that for us.
Jesus understands our suffering. Our sovereign God understands our pain. He doesn't just care and, and is available to us in prayer. He came and got into our messy situation, came into our broken world, and he understands. So we can lean on him when we are suffering. And we can point others to Jesus when they are suffering. But again, it gets even better. Not only does Jesus understand our pain and our suffering, brothers and sisters, he actually does something about it. Earlier I mentioned the difficult part for us as Christians when we think about God being sovereign over our suffering. It means he allows it. It means in some ways he's in control. He's not surprised by it. And that's a difficult question. Why does he allow it to continue? And as I stated at the beginning, many things could be said about suffering. Books upon books upon books have been written about this. I can give suggestions if you're, if you're interested in learning more. But this morning, I'm going to try to offer us one thought as we're dealing with these questions. And I think the question of why does God allow my suffering to continue is ultimately a question about does he care about me? Does he love me? And I don't know everybody's situation in here. I don't know all the suffering that you've all been through. You don't know all the suffering that I've been through. So I can't give everyone a concrete reason why. This is why God in particular is allowing your suffering. Sometimes we might never know. We have a whole book in the Bible called the book of Job where Job never knows the reason why God allowed the suffering that he endured. But one of the ways we can think through it is to think about this. God sovereignly allowing us to experience suffering in this world can't mean that he doesn't care about us. Why not? Because on the cross, Jesus suffered the greatest amount of suffering anyone has ever had to endure so that he could accomplish salvation for you and me. Why did Jesus suffer? Why did he take, his sin upon, why did he take our sin upon himself? Why did he endure the wrath of God for you and I? So that we don't have to. You see, the ultimate suffering, the greatest amount of suffering that any of us could ever experience is the suffering that would come from facing the judgment of God that we deserve for our sins. Jesus went to the cross to take our suffering upon himself, and he died. God did take him away in the midst of his days, but he did that for us. He took the greatest amount of suffering upon himself so that we don't have to go through that. So it can't mean that he doesn't love us. It can't mean that he doesn't care about us. He died on the cross from our sins, but then he rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. He accomplished salvation for us. He, had, he secured eternal life for us. He secured this glorious future that the psalmist is hoping in for us. One day, brothers and sisters, we will be free from all sin. There will be no more pain anymore. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death will be no more and we will see his face 
and we will dwell with him forever. So why does God allow suffering to continue right now? One reason, is, one reason that it can't be, it can't be because he doesn't care. It can't be because he doesn't love us. We know he loves us as we look at the cross. So thanks be to God that Jesus came and accomplished this salvation for us to the glory of God. As I end, I have three points of application that I want us to think about just really quick. First, as individuals, what do we do when we suffer? Well, I think this psalm has given us one, way, one thing to do, one way to look at our suffering, one way to respond to God when we are in affliction. We realize that we can come to him in prayer. We know and we learn and continue to learn about who he is and what he's done for us. This is not all that could, could and should be said about suffering, as I've said but we see how a believer can approach God in the midst of their suffering. He wants us to cry out to him in prayer. He wants us to know what's true about himself so that that would give us confidence as we face this suffering. So when we suffer, our hope is not in what is seen in our immediate circumstances. It is in God who we don't see. It is in our glorious future with him when he renews all of creation, which we don't see right now. And we could know all of this to be true because Jesus rose from the dead. His body is not in that tomb in Jerusalem. His body was raised from the dead and now he is exalted over all, sitting at the right hand of God the Father. So what am I saying I'm saying, cry out to him in affliction. Remember who he is and remember what he's done and look to what he's going to do. That leads into the point, second point of application. I don't want what I just said to sound simplistic. Church, let's not go from here. And when people come to us and are faced with suffering and affliction, just say, trust God. Remember what he's done for you. Like, we should remember what he's done for us, and we want people to remember what he's done for them, right? But we know, if we've ever made that mistake before, that what it actually takes is us sitting with people, weeping with them, groaning with them, listening to them, understanding them, trying to understand them. I don't want that to be a simplistic answer. Trust in God. Look to the cross. It's not a simplistic answer. So let's not offer that out as simplistic, unthoughtful. But that's why we need the church. That's why we need one another. Because sometimes when we're going through things, it might be hard for us to remember what we know, right? Sometimes it's hard to trust in what we should trust in. All of us have experienced this. Oh, I know Jesus died for me. I know that there's a glorious future ahead, but right now things stink. It's okay to be there. I've heard many people say, it's not easy when you're in the thick of things to just say, oh, well, God's sovereign, everything will be okay. 
It's not easy. That's why we need the church. That's why we need one another. That's why we need to lean on one another. So what should we do as a church is kind of the second point of application. I think we should look at this psalm, see the care and compassion that God expresses towards his people. And we need to realize that we are his ambassadors. We are his representatives here on earth. We are pictures of Jesus to one another. We should strive to be that. Strive to care for one another in the midst of our suffering because we want everyone who's a member of this church to know with full confidence that they can come here to their, to their brothers and sisters in Christ and lay their pain out on the table and cry and say, can you just listen? And we want to be there for them. If you're not a member of a local church, I would encourage you to think through this. Become one here or another healthy church in, in the area because all of us need people who love us unconditionally and who are there for us in times of pain. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, we've talked a lot about where our hope is. Where is your hope when you are suffering? Finally, the last point of application Church, we live in a world, like we have non-Christians out there who are suffering just as much as we are. And I want to ask us, are we the kind of people that when the world thinks about the church, maybe they don't, disagree, maybe they don't agree with our doctrine. Of course they won't. Maybe they don't agree with our ethical stances, moral stances. Of course they won't on everything. But when they think about us, do they see us as people who care deeply about one another? The, Jesus said that the world will know that we are his disciples by the way that we love one another. And, and this isn't new in our time, but we see it all the time on social media. It's just put on display for all of us to see. Christians arguing about petty political differences, calling each other names like heretic, and saying that other people have apostatized over disagreements on things that are not issues of first importance. The world sees that. Let's do better. And I'm not saying that our church is doing that, but we see it, right? Let's not do what other people are doing. But then let's also be people who are caring and compassionate to the world. One Christian leader has said it like this. If we as Christians truly believe that the Bible is true and that Jesus is the hope of this world, that sin and anything out in the world will never satisfy our souls, only Jesus will, then we have to believe that any sexual revolution out there, any idolatry over political ideals out there, or whatever we might say that the world and uh, their sin is, is drawn towards, will ultimately fail them. And we need to be ready for that. We need to be ready for people who are broken and let down by the things that they were looking to. We need to be ready with open arms to say, come, Consider Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time. Thank you for this time in your word. I pray that 
you would do us good this morning. Lord, as we suffer, as we live amongst people who are suffering, we need you. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Draw us closer to you every day so that we can be the kind of people who are honest as we cry out to you in our affliction and the kind of people who care and love others so much because you gave us the example and you loved us while we were still your enemies and you died for us. So we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.